0: Historically, one of the hardest schools in the United States Army is the United States Army Drill Sergeant School at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. The requirements to be accepted into the school are pretty rigorous. So many who apply to go become drill sergeants, they don't meet the qualifications, and so they don't even get to go and try. Then the standards at the school are so difficult, so high, that many who go fail, and they don't end up becoming drill sergeants. Now, drill sergeant school is intentionally hard to naturally weed out those who aren't up for the task of being United States Army drill sergeants. Drill sergeant school is hard because those who graduate are given the difficult job of taking civilian recruits, often 17 to 21, and turn them into soldiers. These civilian recruits will have to learn simple and seemingly familiar things like how to walk, how to talk, how to dress, and how to make a bed. They will also learn complex and new things like how to shoot a weapon, how to clean a weapon, how to fight with everything from fists to bayonets. They will learn to throw grenades, maneuver on a battlefield, give first aid to a wounded buddy, and how to keep on keeping on when you're winded and hurt and you want to give up. The drill sergeant is responsible for ensuring when a recruit graduates as a soldier, they can efficiently and effectively do all of these things and more. Drill sergeants train recruits in two ways, through instruction An example, the drill sergeant must not only be able to teach what the soldier must learn to do, but they also must be able to do what the recruit is being taught to do. You cannot teach what you do not know. In many ways, United States Army drill sergeants are meant to be the best soldiers the United States Army has to offer. They must set an example in how it's done in every single area of being a soldier. The recruits must respect the drill sergeant and want to follow their example. The example the drill sergeant sets often determines what kind of soldier the recruit becomes. The reality is examples matter in life. The examples matter when you're going to talking about drill sergeants trying to train recruits. Examples matter for children in their homes with their parents. And examples matter for how we live and how we act as disciples of Jesus out in a lost and a dying world. And the example we, as disciples of Jesus, the example we follow matters. As disciples of Jesus, Jesus is our example in all things. Jesus shows us how to live. Jesus shows us how to talk. Jesus shows us how to act. Jesus shows us how to react to stressors. Jesus shows us how to serve others. Jesus shows us how to serve God. Jesus shows us how to love. Jesus shows us how to teach. And Jesus shows us how to live a life of victory. Today we're going to look at the example of Jesus so that we can learn to follow it. Open your Bible to Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 9 is where we're going to start. When you find that, I'm going to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. should be page 761 if you have a pew Bible. Mark 1, verses 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came from the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit brought him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. title of the message this morning is, The Example of Jesus. Pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. You are great and glorious. You are wonderful and worthy. Uh, We rejoice today in the opportunity we have to gather here, uh, Lord, to have sung your praise, to have spent time talking to you about the burdens upon our heart, and now to look at what your word tells us about Jesus. Father, we are amazed at Jesus. Lord, that that he came for us. Lord, as you look down upon us and our sin and our rebellion, you could have just punished us. You could have just given us what we deserve, but you loved us and you were merciful and gracious and kind. So Jesus came to this earth to live among us. Despite all the good he did, he was rejected, he was beaten, he was murdered. All of that was for us, for me. Help us, help me, never get over what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Never to forget the great price that was paid for our salvation. Let us think about the cross, what it means and why it happened. Let us rejoice in the resurrection of our Savior who didn't stay dead. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who called us to Jesus and revealed our sin to us, caused us to be born again and has been at work sanctifying us since that day. We pray today for your Holy Spirit to be at work among us today. Holy Spirit, take the Word and make it living and active in our hearts. Let it speak to us where we need to be spoken to and say to us the things we need said to us. If we need convicting this morning, Holy Spirit, take the Word and convict us. If we need encouraging this morning, take the Word and encourage us. If we need strengthening this morning, take the Word and strengthen us. All of us need something from the Word today. So take it and do in us what you know needs to be done. Fill me, Holy Spirit, and give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way, but just to say and do what needs to be said and done. Be glorified, Father. Draw us closer to Jesus, we ask in His name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus' appearance at the Jordan River is one of the most important events in the Bible. It is a moment that changes the world forever. Since the day of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden, humanity has looked forward to a Redeemer, a Savior, one who would bridge the gap between God and man and make it possible so that we could come to know God as we were meant to. Thousands of years have come and gone, and yet fallen humanity has waited for the appearance of the One who would bridge this gap and would deliver humanity and defeat sin and would, and would reconcile us to God. Many have come and done things. Some have tried to pretend they were the Messiah. All have fallen short. All have not been able to do what was promised. But then there's Jesus. He comes upon the scene, and as Mark reminds us at the very beginning, He is the Gospel. He is the Son of God. He is the one the world has waited for. Once Jesus shows up, the world changes and nothing is ever the same again. His initial example, His initial appearance is what we're looking at today. It sets an example for us, how we're supposed to live in this world. And from this, what we learn is, as disciples of Jesus, we must follow the example of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus must follow the example of Jesus. Now there's a lot of ways to do this, but this passage gives us what I would call three broad categories of following the example of Jesus. And if we were to follow all three of these categories and we were to put them into practice, live them out, then we would consistently follow the example of Jesus in all areas of our lives. Right. So three categories. Number one, live to please our Heavenly Father. Now the baptism of Jesus by John is a familiar part of the story of Jesus. But it's important for us to remember why Jesus was baptized. Now remember, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Jesus, as the sinless Son of God, has no sins to repent of and thus no sins to be taken away. So why then was Jesus baptized? What was the point of His coming down and going into the water to let John take Him under and bring Him back up again? Well, there are several answers Typically given one, Jesus was baptized to identify the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was starting something new and exciting. He was the forerunner of the coming Messiah. Jesus going to John to be baptized by John was giving his approval to the ministry of John. It was showing people he was the one John was talking about. So this is a a part of why Jesus was baptized by John, but it's not the full explanation. Another explanation is Jesus was baptized to show the importance of baptism, right? It's not uncommon for new believers to ask if they truly have to be baptized, right? I mean, if you're not raised in church especially, to go up there in front of everybody, to be dunked under the water, come back up again, can be an intimidating process, an intimidating thought, and so people ask to really have to be baptized. And so what we often do is we take them to Jesus and say, well, Jesus was baptized And if Jesus was baptized, we're all supposed to follow His example and do what He did. That's also partially true, but it's not the full explanation. Matthew's account records something Jesus said in this part of the baptism that Mark does not give us. It says that Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized of Him. But John, knowing who Jesus was, tried to prevent Him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? But Jesus, answering to him, said, Allow it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus, in being baptized, was going to fulfill all righteousness. Fulfilling all righteousness, in this case, it means doing everything the Father wanted done. Through baptism, Jesus was submitting to the Father's will. Through baptism, Jesus was surrendering the mission the Father sent Him to accomplish of being the Savior of all mankind. Through His baptism, Jesus was setting Himself on a path leading to the cross and then the tomb. Surrendering the Father's will was always a part of what Jesus did. You know, baptism is is a way of saying, I am saved by Jesus, but it's also a pledge, right? We know that. We pledge ourselves to live for Jesus through the act of baptism. Jesus through his baptism was showing. He is committed to doing the father's will. No matter what that will was. He was committed to the father's will. If That meant suffering and dying on the cross. He was committed to doing the father's will. If that meant being dead and laid in a tomb. And he was committed to doing the father's will. Even Eventually when it meant being raised from the dead. Doing the will of the father was always a part of what Jesus did. Jesus said this. When he was gone the night before he was crucified. He went a little. Beyond them fell to the ground, and began praying that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him, but he was saying, and he was saying, I a father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, what you will. We don't have time to get into that familiar passage. The idea of the cup he's talking about is the cup of God's judgment. Over and over again in the Old Testament when people, nations particularly, were going to face the judgment of God, they would be giving the, the cup of the wrath of God. We saw that in the book of Revelation as well. On the cross, the wrath of God was going to be poured out upon Jesus. He was going to take hell in our place. He was going to be separated from the Father for the first time in all of eternity. And so He, knowing what's coming, asks, If there's another way, may He still accomplish your will, but I don't have to drink that cup, let it happen. But then he added, not what I want, what you want. Not my will, but your will. Jesus always did the Father's will, no matter what the Father's will was. Jesus did the Father's will, no matter what it cost him. No matter how costly it might have been, how difficult it might have been, how uncomfortable it might have been, Jesus did the Father's will. Therefore, Jesus could say, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Could you or I make that statement? Could you or I say, I always do the things that are pleasing to my Heavenly Father? Could we even say, I I really want to always do the things that are pleasing to my Heavenly Father, no, no matter what that would be? Part of what I thought about with this is Jesus was always intentional about seeking to do the Father's will. He knew he couldn't drift through life and accidentally stumble upon doing what God the Father wanted him to do. He didn't just sort of go through life and react in a natural way and hope that that was what the Father's will was. In every situation, Jesus intentionally thought about what would be the Father's will in this case. And then he did what was the Father's will. That would be how he reacted. That would be how he acted. That would be how he spoke. That would be how he dealt with difficult people. That would be how he prioritized his day. How he prioritized his life. What he valued. There was no area of Jesus' life where he did not intentionally seek to do the will of his heavenly Father. We see in verse 11, God was very pleased by this. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. If we want to please our heavenly Father, then we too must be intentional about doing his will. And again it is I think the, the act of being intentional. Because we won't drift into the father's will. God's will, the way of the world, are not even remotely close. If we're not intentional about doing the father's will. I think it's unlikely we will ever do the father's will. The odds of just reacting and acting and prioritizing and speaking in a natural sort of way and doing the Father's will to me seem slim to none at best and extremely impossible at worst. Think about this in relation to maybe specifically to temptations or something like that. We're tempted by something. Now, temptations typically don't just pounce on us and suddenly we're in part of the sin before we knew what was going on. Right? There's the pool. There's the, come do this. Oh, I know I should In that moment, do we take the time to stop and think, what would be the Father's will in this moment? What would please my Father in this moment of my life? Now, don't don't think about this just in relation to, say, the big sins. I'm not going to murder somebody because I'm really angry. Think about it in relation to all things. You know, in life, there are many things we can't control in the moment. Circumstances do overtake us. But how we respond to those circumstances. We have full control over that. So think about a moment where something happens and you get angry. Again, we may not be able to stop the fact that something, a flash of anger, a wave of anger comes over us. But we do have the ability to choose how we act in that anger. Do we in that moment when we feel the anger come against us, do we stop there and think, how would my father want me to react To this feeling. What would he want me to do in this moment? Will the words I'm about to say please my father? Will the actions I'm about to take please my father? Will the way I'm about to react to this stressor please my father? If we don't, we should. We should always be intentional about seeking to do our father's will in every situation. Think about also in relation to judgmental or critical thoughts. Right? Again, we may not be able to stop them from coming into our minds. Uh, there are just various things that will happen in life that will cause us to have those sort of thoughts. But we can control what we do with those thoughts. We can say to ourselves, Will verbally expressing this judgmental or critical thought, will it please my Father? Well, making fun of this person through this judgmental or critical thought to someone else, will that be pleasing to my father? But what, How could I react in this moment that would please my father? Or gossip. We can't stop people typically from telling us gossip. But what do we do with it in the moment? Do we say, ask ourselves, well, sharing this gossip. Or I think maybe we can't stop people from trying to tell us the gossip. Well, I've got something to tell you. We can't stop that, but can we say, would listening to this be pleasing to my Father? What would it be more pleasing to my Father to say, if that's gossip, I don't want to hear it. I The Bible says things about people who who listen to gossip, and I don't want to be a part of that. Would that be pleasing, or would it be more pleasing to listen to it? Same with sharing it. Well, now I have this gossip. It's burning a hole in my tongue to come out and to tell other people. What would please my Father in this moment? To let the gossip die with me. I've heard it. I can't undo hearing it. But I don't have to share it. Or think about how we treat people. Our world right now is is really an angry world. People are really pretty terrible to one another. It's just a general rule. Humanity has always been kind of violent and angry and done bad things to people. But we live in a world right now where belittling and mocking and tearing people down is is almost a, a sport. And, and probably, if we're being honest, some of us have taken part in that in one way or another. But is that pleasing to our Heavenly Father? Do We say in a moment, I could, I could say this and belittle this person. Even if I don't say it to them, I say it to someone else. Is this pleasing to my Heavenly Father? Will He be pleased at this conversation I'm about to have with someone else? I mean, there's no real limit to how this could play out in our lives. The key to it is being intentional. Intentionally asking myself what would be the most pleasing thing I could do to my Heavenly Father in this moment. Now you think, well, that sounds like a lot of work. It does. It's part of denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following Jesus. Nothing about that sounds easy. All of that sounds difficult. Being a faithful disciple of Jesus, it's hard. Following the example of Jesus is hard. But that is what we're supposed to do in this life. In order to, to live to please our Heavenly Father, we must be intentional. We, we won't drift through life acting in the ways that are natural. Reacting in the ways that are natural. Speaking in the ways that naturally come to us. Thinking in the ways we naturally think. And please our Heavenly Father because we are so Unlike him. He is holy. 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 And we are at best in the process of being sanctified. And so it's going to take tremendous effort. Intentional effort. On our part. To live a life that is consistently. Continually. Pleasing to our Heavenly Father. In every area of life. This is what Jesus did. And as disciples of Jesus. We are meant to. To follow the example of Jesus. Not only live to please our heavenly Father. But follow the Spirit's leading. Now strange things happen. After Jesus is baptized. It's Verse 10 it says immediately. Coming up out of the water. The, the heavens opened. The Spirit like a dove descended upon him. And then the voice spoke from heaven. It says, my Bible says he saw the heavens opening. The New King James says the heavens parted. The ESV says the heavens were torn apart. The Greek word used pictures the sky being ripped open and the Holy Spirit descending out of heaven, out of that hole that's been ripped in the visible form of a dove. What an amazing sight that must have been to behold. So it wasn't just like the Holy Spirit and the dove just came down. There was a. Tearing back of the sky. Almost like you could just picture it opening it up. Kind of like in The Wizard of Oz where the curtain was torn back and you saw the guy behind there in a similar way. The heavens are torn up and you could almost see into heaven and the Holy Spirit comes out of that hole and comes falling down upon Jesus. Now something interesting with this is this is a fulfillment of something prayed earlier. In Isaiah 64, Isaiah prays for God to tear open the heavens and come down. And at this moment, the heavens have been torn open. God has come down in the person of Jesus Christ. In many ways, this is a visible answer to Isaiah's prayer from 700 years earlier. And just as an aside, not part of the message Our prayers matter. Just because we don't see them now doesn't mean some point in the future God's not going to answer them. Anyway, moving on. The heavens are torn open. The Holy Spirit comes down in the visible form of a dove and rests upon Jesus. Now, the Holy Spirit coming down upon Jesus and resting upon Him in this manner is a critical element in the ministry of Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to do everything He did. Now, that may sound wrong as we say Jesus was the son of God. We've already talked about that. Jesus was and is God in the flesh who possessed all the power of God. And if Jesus was and is God in the flesh who possessed all the power of God, why would he need the power of the Holy Spirit to enable him to do all the things he did? It's because Jesus didn't come to live as God in the world. Jesus came to live as man in the world. When God made Adam, He was given dominion over the earth. Adam, as we know, sinned and brought the curse upon the entire world. When Jesus came, He came to do what Adam didn't do. Adam was meant to be faithful to God. To to do His Father's will completely in all things, which He did not do. Jesus came to succeed where Adam failed. To accomplish this, Jesus took upon Himself our humanity, Hebrews 2.14. And he laid aside some of his divine privileges, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. And this enabled Jesus to experience life as a human. He hungered. He thirsted. He was tired. He experienced exhaustion, pain, temptation, and even death. To to succeed where Adam fell, Jesus had to experience all of these things and yet do them without sinning. This required the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything Jesus did, He did as a Spirit-filled man. As a Spirit-filled man, Jesus lived a perfect life. As a Spirit-filled man, He kept every rule and regulation of God. As a Spirit-filled man, He died on the cross. And He shed His blood for the atonement of our sins. And, interestingly enough, I didn't put it in the, the message, but... Jesus says at one point, the Father loves him because he has the power to lay his life down and he has the power to take it up again. And yet, the, Old, the New Testament tells us Jesus was raised to life by the power of the Spirit. Jesus did not even, through his own God power, raise himself from the dead. The Holy Spirit did it. What Jesus did, he did not as God through that God power but through sensitive, sensitivity and surrender to the Spirit of God. Let me show you this specifically from Luke's Gospel. Turn to Luke chapter 3. Look at verse 21. So here's the baptism of Jesus again. When the people were all baptized, Jesus was also baptized while he was praying. Heaven opened. The Holy Spirit descended upon him bodily like a dove, voice from heaven. You are my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. So I wanted to show you that so you can see we're picking up a fuller testimony of what happened then. Now, look at chapter four and verse one. Now, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit In the wilderness. And if you even look at Mark's gospel, it does tell us. And immediately the Spirit brought him out into the wilderness. So Jesus is going where the Spirit is leading him. Jesus as God knows the mission, but Jesus as a Spirit filled man is following the Spirit's leadership to go where the Spirit wants him to go. So chapter four, he's led by the Spirit. He is tempted. He responds in all the right ways. Then you look at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So here's Jesus, baptized in the Spirit. He is the baptizer of the Spirit, but He is also baptized in the Spirit. He is then filled with the Spirit. He is then led by the Spirit. And He then comes out in the power of the Spirit. Now, look down at verse 17. A scroll in Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He, who? He, the Holy Spirit, sent me to proclaim release to the captives. He sent me to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. Again, He sent me to free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So whoever Jesus is talking about in this passage is someone that has the Spirit of God upon him to preach the Word and to do mighty works. So who is he talking about? Look at verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all the people in the synagogue were intently directed at him. And then he began to say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Who was Isaiah talking about in that scroll? The coming Messiah. Who was the Messiah? Jesus. So Jesus would be baptized in the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, led by the Spirit. And He would go forth in the power of the Spirit to speak the Word and do mighty works. This is how Jesus came and did the things that He did. He did all he did through the unction, through the anointing, the Holy Spirit. He preached the word and he did the works. Now, none of the... Go ahead and turn back to, to Mark. None of this minimizes the fact Jesus was and is God in the flesh. He didn't stop being God. He just stopped using his divine power in an effort to follow the spirit and do what Adam failed to do. Jesus had to, as a human, limit himself and do things as a human would do them. And still do them right. And the only way any of us could do the things God would want us to do, it's not in our own strength. It's in the power of the Spirit. And so that's what Jesus came to do and set an example for in our lives. For humans to to do things right, to do them God's way, requires us to have the Spirit, Requires us to follow the Spirit, requires us to be filled with the Spirit and requires us to be empowered by the Spirit. When Jesus rose from the dead and ascended back into heaven, he sent the Spirit to indwell every person who repented of their sins and believed in him. We we saw last week in Acts, Jesus is the one who poured out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit was for every person who would repent of their sins and believed in Jesus. Now there is potential. For each and every disciple of Jesus. To live a spirit filled. And a spirit controlled life. Now this is a, of course a life of victory. This is a life that follows the example of Jesus. Galatians the apostle tells us. Walk in the spirit. And you will not. Carry out the desires of the flesh. Right? So. So. The, the flesh and the spirit live within us and they're pulling in opposite directions. Our flesh is pulling us to resist the will of God and to do what we want to do. The spirit is saying, no, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus and do his will. The one that wins that struggle is the one we surrender to. And if I surrender to the spirit, always, I will never carry out the desires of my sinful nature. No one following the Spirit ever sins. No one following the Spirit ever gives in to their sinful passions and their sinful desires. For any of us as disciples of Jesus, for us to sin, to give in to sin, what we must do is we resist the Spirit and we submit to our sinful sinful nature and then we sin. So if we want to live a life of holiness, we can, but only... Through the power of the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit doesn't just lead us to live a holy life. He says, goes on, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let's follow the Spirit as well. Some translations say walk in the Spirit. Some say keep in step, which is probably the overall better translation. Because it pictures soldiers walking together in a formation. If you've ever seen a a military performance team. How they spin their weapons and how they march and how they talk and how they do all they do. they, They move as one. And the picture is what we're to do is move as one with the Spirit. As the Spirit leads us, we're to follow that leading. When He says go right, we go right. When He says go left, we go left. When He says say this, we say that. When He says shut up, we shut up. And this will lead us to not only live a holy life, But to serve Jesus, it will lead us to glorify our Father. It will lead us to always do those things that please Him. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't just lead us in quote-unquote religious things. The Holy Spirit leads us in all areas of life. We are to keep in step with Him always. And if we do that, we will follow the example of Christ. We will live to please our Heavenly Father. This is what we're meant to do. Now, one final thing, and this is interesting, I want us to see before we move on. Verse 12 says, the Spirit brought him out into the wilderness. The word brought out is a stronger word than brought. Because that implies a, almost a leading. But the word user, the Greek word used, there is the same word used when it says Jesus cast demons out. Now, if you've read the Gospels, you know the demons didn't leave willingly; some of them fought back. It was a forceful word. I, I read one commentary, and the guy said the word that's used there—that it a picture. It's called the Greek word. I think is ekbalo, and it, he said ekbalo isn't. I brought it from here to there. Ballo is what a pitcher does to a baseball. They follow it. And Jesus followed the demons. And the Holy Spirit pushed Jesus in that same sort of way. Out into the wilderness. Where he was tempted by Satan. The Holy Spirit intentionally pushed Jesus into conflict with the devil. The Holy Spirit intentionally pushed Jesus into a place where He would have a direct conflict with the King the king of the Kingdom of Darkness. And the Holy Spirit then empowered Him to overcome the King of the Kingdom of Darkness. The lesson for us is a Spirit-filled, Spirit-led life is not necessarily going to lead us down easy paths. Now, the Holy Spirit will always lead us down the right path. That does not make them the easy paths. The Holy Spirit is not necessarily going to lead us a life of trouble free and a life of ease. Rather, the Holy Spirit is going to consistently lead us to places of direct conflict with Satan and his minions. This is because we are not filled with the Spirit to be tame and soft and live an easy life. We are filled with the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit to war against the kingdom of darkness. When the Holy Spirit fills us, He is filling us to be soldiers. And He is filling us to take ground from the kingdom of darkness, to advance the kingdom of God. And every advance of the kingdom of God takes something away from the kingdom of darkness. And the kingdom of darkness does not just give up ground easily. Spiritual conflict is a natural part of being filled with the Spirit and led with the Spirit. Therefore, it is not an easy life. It is the victorious life, but it is not the easy life. The Holy Spirit will fill us. He will empower us. And then He will directly, He will lead us to direct conflict with the kingdom of darkness. That is just a fact. As disciples of Jesus, we are meant to follow the example of Jesus, and this means following the Spirit's leading. And then thirdly, Take responsibility to fight temptations. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals. Gerald uh, read at the start of service the Matthews account, so I won't turn there. But Jesus was tempted, and in his temptation, he overcame. And if we were to turn and look at Matthew and Luke, which we don't have time, but we would find Principles. To help us take responsibility to fight temptation. Now the take responsibility part is really the biggest part. Again, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, is not going to casually let us deal with temptation. We we can't drift and expect to overcome temptation. We can't just go with the flow and overcome. We, We can't blame others. We have to take responsibility for our temptations. So here are four ways to take responsibility for your fight to temptation. For me to take responsibility for my fight. Expect to be tempted. As we've seen, when we're Spirit-filled and Spirit-led, the Holy Spirit is going to to lead us into conflict. And that's going to bring about temptation into our lives. Uh, Jesus Was filled with the Spirit, following the Spirit in the direct center of the Father's will, and yet temptation came straight for him. Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, the Messiah who came, and Satan went to him to try to tempt him. From this, what we can learn is if Satan will go to Jesus and try to tempt him, he will certainly do what he can to try to tempt us. We should not be surprised by the fact we're tempted to sin. We will be. We are. And we will always be so long as we live in this life, I think. Now, there, might, there might be a time. I, I knew a lady at Fort Gibson. She was, I don't know, she was close to 100 when she passed away. I think we called Miss Dorothy. She said getting old was wonderful. She just read her Bible and prayed and lived with Jesus all day, wasn't tempted to sin. I don't know, maybe at 100 you arrive at a place where that's not a temptation But I think for the rest of us, it's going to be. We're going to struggle with it. We're going to deal with it. Now, we're not all going to be tempted by the same things, but we're all going to be tempted. You're tempted by something. You know you are. I'm tempted by something. I know I am. So we should expect it. We're not just going to wake up tomorrow and temptation's gone. Right? Expect to be tempted. The worst feeling of all, or one of the worst feelings of all, is being blindsided by something you didn't know was coming. Right? If we say, well, I'm going to pray really hard today and tomorrow I'll never be tempted by sin again. We're going to be really discouraged. We're going to live a life of deep, deep discouragement. Um, And it's easy for us to do that. You think, well, I've been a Christian for 20 years. I've been a Christian for 30 years. Surely I should be better than this by now. I'm a pastor. Surely pastors aren't tempted by sin, right? Um, But sadly, at least this one is. And if we think we're ever going to get beyond it, man, we're going to live deeply discouraged lives. And if we say, though, I'm tempted, not because I'm a terrible Christian, not because I'm not saved, not because I don't love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm tempted because I'm a human who lives in a fallen, sin-cursed world who still, though I've been redeemed, I have a fallen nature that is warring against the Spirit within me. I'm going to be tempted, but I'll not be overcome by it. Even if I fail, I'm not going to fall down, stay down, and wallow in the mud. I'm going to get up, clean myself off through Jesus, and I'm going to move on out. we expect it, it helps us to overcome it. And that's a big part of taking responsibility. right? Jesus, again, it's not His fault. He is not going to stand guard over us and be like, No, 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 no. And keep us from always being tempted. He doesn't put us and make us little bubble boys that nothing can touch us. We're expected to overcome by the power of the Spirit. And so, expect it. Secondly, resist and reject the temptation immediately. This is is critical. If we want to overcome the temptation, we have to resist it and reject it immediately. How many of us know the longer we think about the temptation, the better the temptation seems? And the better the temptation seems, the better I can justify Giving into it just this one time. Right? Isn't that what we can all do? We can all, we, I mean, as humans, we are masters of self justification. Every one of us, every one of us can explain why someone who does this is a terrible person. But when we do it, it it's different. If you ever really want to see the master of justification, work with kids. Work with kids. Two kids can do the exact same thing. And the parents can say, well, that kid should be punished, but my kid should not. Why? They did the exact same thing. It's different. You just don't understand. Well, what we do for our kids, we do for ourselves as well. And When you look at the temptation of Jesus, you don't see Him thinking about it. Satan says, I'll give you all the nations of the world right now. If you'll bow before me, you'll see Jesus going, no, no, that cross thing sounds pretty bad. Bow before the devil, follow the Father and go to the cross. Immediate, delayed. Uh, he doesn't do that. Get thee behind me, Satan. Instant. If you're the Son of God, turn this rocks into bread. Man shall not live by bread alone. I mean, instant rejection of the temptation. So the moment we're tempted, which, again, expect to happen rather than meditate on it and think on it, reject it, recognize it as a temptation. This is tempting me to sin. This is not of God. And you've got to find a way to do it because you can't just say, don't think about it. Don't think about don't don't think about telling that gossipy story. Don't think about blowing up in anger because what are you doing? You're thinking about it. You got to find a way to replace it. Right, Something what I, I try to do is just I constantly tell, that's not from you, God, that's not from you, that's not from you. Right? Find a song to think to sing about or something. But we've got to find a way to immediately resist it and to reject it right at the moment. Pray specifically against the temptation. Uh, if we want to have strength to fight temptation, we have to pray against it. But we don't pray against it just at the moment. We pray against it in advance. Again, most of us know what we are most tempted by. If I were to ask you to write down secretly where no one else could see what temptation you give in to the most, few of us would have to go, gosh, I I don't know. I mean, there would be something or some things that would pop to our minds quickly. Use that knowledge and pray against that specific temptation. Don't pray generically. God, help me to... Fight temptation. Help me to fight this temptation. Now, obviously, there are going to be times where things do surprise us and we're tempted by things we didn't expect to be tempted by. That happens. It's just part of being fallen in a sin-cursed world. But what I know about myself, I must use to fight the spiritual battles I'm going to fight. I must pray against those temptations. And, and, And I think it means being honest with God about it. Because one of the reasons we're tempted by the things is because we want to do them, don't we? We receive a measure of pleasure from them. At least in the moment. Later, we may feel self-condemned. Later, we may feel miserable. But in the moment, we enjoy it. That's why we do it. Confess that. Lord, I'm tempted by this. I'm going to face this today. And the reality is, I want to give in to it. Change my heart. I don't want to want to give in to it. In the moment, help me to find the way out you've promised. Pray specifically against your temptation. And then finally, use God's Word to fight. Jesus repeatedly says, Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Word. He repeatedly says, Whatever we're tempted by, God's Word has something to say about it. Find it. Memorize it. And I will say with this, don't just memorize something that condemns it. Because that becomes discouraging. When I first got the idea of memorizing Scripture, I memorized Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So I would try to memorize that in the moment of temptation. And then I would give in to it. And then all I could think about was going to hell apparently. That was not helpful to me. But what does the Bible say about lust? It says flee from. If I memorize what... Paul says to Timothy about flee from youthful lusts. Then in the moment I'm tempted, I just get up and run away. right? What does the Bible say about gossip? Well, what the Bible says, I need to find that, memorize that, and in that moment, memorize what it says to do about gossip in my life. Or if I just have a problem with my mind and I think, I get caught up in my mind, and all I do is think angry thoughts. Or something like that. Then memorize maybe Colossians three one about set your mind on things above and not things below. And so you're as you're memorizing, you're not saying don't think angry thoughts, don't think angry thoughts, don't think these things. You're saying set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the Father's right hand. And you're thinking about that and you're exchanging, you're changing your thought patterns. That's how you take your thought captive. What the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10. So find a passage that will help you fight whatever you're tempted by. And use God's word. That's what Jesus used. It is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is what we're meant to use. If we are ever going to overcome temptation, we have to take responsibility for our fight. Our culture will push back against this. We are a blame culture. Nothing is ever our fault. We are a society of irresponsibility. We blame the government. We blame our spouse. We blame the devil. We blame our parents. We blame God. We blame heredity. We blame our environment. We blame anything and everything but us. And that guarantees a life of defeat. The only way we will ever overcome temptation is to say it is my responsibility and it is my fault I give in to these things. And until we do that, we will never overcome. This is the example of Jesus. He took responsibility. He didn't blame the Spirit. You led me here. This isn't fair. He took responsibility. He resisted it and rejected it immediately. He prayed specifically. He used God's Word to fight it. That's what we do. This is the example of Jesus. And this is what we're meant to follow. As disciples of Jesus. So the question I I want to leave us with. Are we following the example of Jesus? Are we following His example of living to please our Father in all areas of life? Are we following His example of following the leading of the Spirit? Are we following His example of taking responsibility for our fight against temptation? If we're not, what do we need to do so we can start following His example? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You. You are great and wonderful. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come today. We ask You to help us to follow the example of Christ. Help us, Father, to to think. In a moment, what would my Father want me to do right now? How would my Father want me to respond? Let us make the choice that would be most pleasing to You. Help us to be more aware of Your Spirit's leadership, more sensitive to His guidance, and, and follow Him and keep in step with Him in all things. Father, the temptations are always there. They're always coming. If we haven't faced them this morning, we're going to face them at some point today and then we're going to wake up tomorrow and face them again. It is just an everyday thing. Help us to take responsibility for our part in it. Take responsibility that it is no one else's job to fight temptation for me, but me. And then let us do what is necessary to follow the example of Christ and to overcome. Lord, we want to live lives that are different, From a lost and a dying world. We want the world to see how we live. In any moment of our lives. And ask us. Why are you so different? Why aren't you like everyone else? So that we can put our arms around them. And say let me tell you. About a Savior who came. We ask this in his name. For his sake. Amen.